Hey everyone, this is Matt Kamen, co-founder of Envision Consulting and the host of the podcast, Nonprofit on the Rocks. Before the pandemic, the part of my job that I loved the most was going on happy hours with my clients, with nonprofit leaders, and just anybody who was a badass do-gooder in nonprofit. Over drinks, I'd learn why they got into nonprofit, what inspires them, what keeps them motivated, and what drives them insane. When everything shut down, I realized how much I missed those conversations. And honestly, drinking alone right now isn't that much fun. So then it occurred to me that not only do these conversations not have to end, but maybe there are like one or two listeners out there who'd like to listen. People like me, who are tired of the same boring industry podcast and want something different. So pull up a seat, pour yourself a drink, and join me in the conversation. Hey everyone, welcome to Nonprofit on the Rocks. I'm your host and Envision co-founder, Matt Kamen. And today I'm talking to the lovely Ileana Tavera, who is the executive director of Haven Hills, which is a domestic violence shelter in the Valley. But before we get into that conversation, Ileana, what are you drinking? I'm drinking a Pimm's Cup. Wow. A, uh, yeah, a little fruit, a little Pimm's Cup. Something I, I, I don't really appreciate that you called me a little fruit already in the oh, conversation. Yeah, but I know. Here, here we are. It here happens. We are. Here it happens. Are. I am I, very inappropriate. Yes. Very inappropriate. Well, we're going to talk <laughs> yes. about the gay stuff later. Let's just wait. Yes. Let's just not break into it right away. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to pour myself. So my two listeners that we had two weeks ago, um, mm-hmm. I drank four roses. I'm going to do it again. Wow. Which, you know, I feel like I should... I should be drinking something better. But anyway, here we are. So a very happy Friday to you. Cheers, a virtual cheers. Thank you. Yes, virtual cheers. They're like, oh, by the way, it's Rosh Hashanah uh-huh. tonight. It's Rosh Hashanah tonight. So to a very happy, I guess, new year. I think it's, new like, year. 50, it's like 57, 31 or something. I don't know how far we go back. I don't know how I- we that out. I'll take it. I'll take. I'll take any new year. Twenty twenty has not been a good one. I'll take the the new Jewish new new year. I'll take anyone. Just anyone. So adopt a, me, and I'll take your year. To a very happy fifty seven yes. twenty whatever, and mm-hmm. to no more of this fucking plague. I'm done with this plague. I'm done with the Rona. Yes, cheers. thank you. Yes, cheers. Mm. Okay, so before we get into kind of what you do for a living every day, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just want the listener to find out a little bit about you and how you got into this world. Ah. Take me back to, you know, 21-year-old Ileana when you were like, maybe I want to get into nonprofit. Maybe that sounds like a good idea. And before oh God, we are today, we're you're like... You're going to hate <laughs> me because it was actually a 19-year-old Ileana. Ah. That, All right, what um, happened? Well, I went to a, a university that ran a number of small nonprofits in the city of Boston. I think there were like 200 or 300. It was a crazy number. But the great thing about the Phillips Brooks House was that they were kind of incubators for, for new nonprofits. And so students got to run them, raise money for them, staff them. And I engaged with a, uh, an, an enrichment camp in Roxbury, Massachusetts. And so I was, uh, I was a, a counselor one year, and the next year I was the, the administrative director. So wow. I got to raise all the money and I got to hire all the staff and I got to run the program. And wait, 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 wait. I just went back up. Yeah. At 20 years old, you were managing yeah. staff. I was, oh, yeah. Staff must have been so pissed to have a 21-year-old. Yeah. Well, no, they were all students too. Oh, so we were okay. all students. Um, it was a really amazing experience uh, to the point that we were actually, we qualified for free meals through mm-hmm. the Department of Education for, in Massachusetts. 
And I had a friend who was running another camp and she got inspected and they weren't supposed to give, you know, free meals to, to counselors, but they caught some of the counselors eating the meals and they got suspended from the program. Wow. And I was such a little shit at the time. I, I thought I knew everything. I actually developed a relationship with the guy who ran the program. So I picked up the phone and I was like, hey, buddy, like my friend got and, and he actually unsuspended her. And so I was like, well, maybe I should do this professionally. And so I started to like really think about what a career in the nonprofit sector would look like for me and what I would need to do to do that. And so I did, I started doing a number of internships with some foundations in the city of Boston, Foley, uh, Hoag and Elliot, I'm going to mess it up, which does. Hoag and Elliot, that sounds like a Yeah, it's a law firm. They did the the Boston busing cases and they took the the money that they got from that, from those, uh, those cases. And they actually uh, set up a foundation to work on racial issue, issues in the city of, of Boston. When I graduated from college, I didn't want to stay in Boston because it's freaking cold. Yeah, it's so cool. I moved back to California, uh, to Los Angeles, and I spent the summer after college looking for a job. And I applied to every nonprofit that I could think of. Like I literally, and no one would hire me. I, to a point where uh, one gentleman who was interviewing said to me, your resume looks like graduate school to me. Why should I take a chance with you? You're yeah, going to leave nice. me in a year to go to graduate school. And I was like, oh my God, that's you're a nice. dick. But uh, no, I don't want to do that. Can I say bad words in this you podcast? You can say, listen, yeah, no, one's, okay. no, one's, no one's listening to us anyway. Okay, so do whatever great. you got to say. And so I actually started looking for for-profit jobs at that point. And so oh. I was this close to being hired at a bank doing marketing for them. Wow. And I gave it one last chance and applied to the California Science Center, which at that point was the California Museum of Science and Industry. They were looking for an associate to come in for their uh, capital campaign team. So, and, just so just so our viewer or uh-huh. listener, listener, not viewer, I don't uh-huh. want to, I definitely don't want to be looking at me. Okay. Um, capital campaign means that you're raising money to build a building. To build a building. They were going to really, I think it's like the biggest science museum in the Western United States at this point. But at that point, they were rebranding. They were building the, the, what is the first wing of their new science museum. And so I was the last person they interviewed. They, wow. Like I sent them, I faxed them my resume. That's what you did back <laughs> then. You faxed your resume. And they said, you're our last interview. Can you come like tomorrow? And I went in and she said, I really like you. Can you come tomorrow again to meet the senior vice presidents? And then they, by the time I got home from the second interview, I'd already had a job. And so I said no to the bank, but this close to, to probably having a new career anyway, because in 2007, when the, when the market crashed uh, for banks, I probably would have been out of a job. Yeah. It wouldn't have mattered at that point. But, but, but just like, imagine if you, if you Uh work for a for-profit bank, you'd have like a corner Mm -hmm. office, you'd have an expense account. I would, would but I would probably hate it. Yeah. I probably, yeah, I'd probably hate it. I'm, I'm that, yeah, I'm that kind of a person. Like I always fantasize about that, like for yeah. the world, but yeah, like you, we're just, we're idiots. We should stay in nonprofit. Yeah, no. <laughs> it's who we are. It's who we are. Okay. I like so, the uh, adrenaline apparently. And then I started my career at the California Science Center and I've, I've worked for the California Science Center. I've worked for Ronald McDonald House Charities. I've worked for a company called Nature Bridge, which does environmental education in national parks. And then now I'm at, at Haven Hills, which is a domestic violence organization that provides shelter and and services for domestic violence survivors and their families in the San Fernando Valley. And so here I am. God, I want to say it's been about 25 years now, close to 25 years of doing this work. You know, it flies by. I mean, it really does. Like, you know, I just, I remember almost all of it. Right. And I've worked for some really great organizations for some really great causes. And I'm very happy with the work that I've done. 
and very proud of the things that those organizations uh, have been able to accomplish over, over those 25 years. So. I want to talk about domestic violence for a second mm-hmm. and what you've been going through with coronavirus. So what, in terms of being an executive director, right, because I've done it too, mm-hmm. and I never want to do it again. Uh-huh. What is your least favorite part about being an executive director? I think it's managing people, both employees and boards, right? It's hard because uh, oftentimes everybody thinks they can do your job better than you can right? Everybody knows how to do stuff. And, and, it, and it's hard unless you're doing it day in and day out. And, you know, executive director, directors put in a lot of time to their organizations. They work weekends, they work late at night. They're constantly thinking, I mean, I, when I'm working out, I'm thinking about Haven Hills. When I'm taking a shower, I'm thinking about Haven Hills. You know, I get up at two o'clock in the morning sometimes and have to jot notes down. I mean, it's, it's a constant grind. These organizations, we're running small businesses. Yeah. Yeah, you know, people who who are business owners know that it's a constant grind to, I mean, you, you do this, you know, running your own company. My favorite, favorite, favorite story of managing staff, because you said managing staff is the mm-hmm. is the worst. And I agree, managing staff is the worst. By the way, before I forget, you know, there's like a, there's like a paper pen set that you can put in the shower and it's waterproof. Mm-hmm. So if you take- Oh, wow. I yeah, always no, that's think a little my, much. I always remember. I'll write I it when I get out. It, I don't remember. I, get, I forget. I forget. Okay. But so my very mm-hmm. first, I ran a homeless shelter in, in mm-hmm. New Jersey and my mm-hmm. very first experience terminating an employee, which by the way, is no fun for anybody. I had worked my ass off and this place had no money. And I raised, I don't know, it was like literally like $800, but we had to re cement around our fridge. It was a homeless shelter. So we had a walk-in fridge and freezer. So we had uh-huh. to cement it because it was falling apart. Anyway, so I got the money. I was so proud of myself. We like, cause I was 26. I mean, I was new, I was a kid when I, this is a whole other story. Right. And so we did it. And then one of my employees actually carved his initials into the concrete. Oh, so wow. I was furious and I pulled him aside and I was like, hey, like, what were you thinking? And he was like, well, mm. I just, you know, he didn't even know that it was a big deal. And so being, right. I had to fire him, obviously. But being an executive director is horrible because right. staff think it's just the easiest thing in the world. They don't understand what you go through most of yeah. them. So what is your favorite part about being an executive director? Building. Yeah, but you know, there are, there are certain types of executive directors, and I, th- I think I've always been a builder. I think you know, I can identify problems, I can figure out how to solve them, and I work towards an end goal. And I think that that's what's been most exciting for me. And every nonprofit that I've worked with is just kind of building a program, right? I, I thrive in that. I, I'd like to. I'm the fixer. I've always been considered a fixer everywhere I've been, and so I think taking an organization that may be floundering, that may have issues and, and writing it has always been really, really fun. Uh, uh, there's no other way to put it. Uh, it's also extremely stressful. And I think that's why, uh, why my jobs have always been stressful is that there's always been an underlying issue that needs to be corrected. And, um, and so that's what I was actually going to ask you, by the way, you still yeah. haven't had a drink because I've been forced. I do. I am. I'm drinking. But, right, you know, I've sure. also been talking. I can't do both at the same time. I, I know, but the more that you drink, the more that I can just get you drunk and then we can talk a lot of shit that you're not going to be like, wait a second, I said that and it's already going to be yeah. live. So well, I've already said a bad word. So you've already said a bad word. Yeah. And, okay. and don't forget, you called me a fruit, which we'll talk about. Later. I did. Yes, you did. You did. So my, my question then is how do you, how do you have work-life balance or do you, is that even possible as an executive director? a tough question. I try to have a work-life balance and I, and I do. I think, you know, my wife would tell you that, that I'm constantly on my phone and that I'm constantly on the computer. And, um, but she also has a demanding career. And so oftentimes she'll be on the phone. Actually, her job is actually cost us to cancel 
plans more than mine has. Um, so I think it's finding the right partner that understands and she, she will step in and help whenever she can. Right. There've been many an event where she's, you know, volunteer to be our photographer, things like that. So I think she understands. And she also is really good when we go to events because I have to work the room that she'll like figure out how to entertain herself, you know? And, um, and so I think picking the right partner is important for that work-life balance because they understand and then I don't know. I think that's a struggle for me and it continues to be a struggle for me. And so I, I don't think, know how to answer that question because it's sure. a hard one for me. Yeah. So I know I'm going to piss off a lot of other executive directors out there. Yeah. I'm, so, I'm not really sorry. Mm-hmm. But like if you're a really good executive director, you don't really have work-life balance because like you're always thinking about your organization. There's no other way to do it. So like yeah. I get, I get it. And you know, it's really funny. My husband, you know, Philip, my husband like... Uh-huh so sick of listening to me talking about nonprofit stuff, like so tired of it. Like anytime that something like when this comes up or anything, he's like, I'm out. I'm going to go see my other boyfriend. He doesn't want to like hear anything anymore. So I'm happy that Sandy likes to be there for you and volunteer. Well, uh, no, no, no. I, she's good at it. Like. I didn't say she likes it. I mean, this is going a little, I, that's going a little far. I think she, she's also tired of hearing me complain about certain things. Yeah. And I think she is tired of hearing about nonprofits all the time. So we find other things to discuss. Uh, when, we're, when we're together. So if I'm a 21-year-old, right? I'm 21-year-old Ileana, and I'm thinking of for-profit, nonprofit, and I'm sitting in mm-hmm. front of you right now. And I'm like, should I, do I want to be an executive director? Is that something mm-hmm. I want to do? Mm-hmm. What would you tell me? I think you have to take every opportunity presented to you. I think, you know, part of the, the problem that I see with young people coming up in these fields is that oftentimes they don't take those chances, Right. Right. I remember myself at 19 and 21 is like, I would try anything, right? I would, I would be the first to, to raise my, my hand to take on a new project because if I didn't, I wouldn't have it. I mean, that's how I, I started supervising people. That's how I started, you know, doing inter- job interviews. And, you know, cause I was like, oh, I'll do it. Yeah. Look, I'll, right. I'll review, I'll review resumes for that position. Like, how am I going to learn that if I don't put myself out there? And I think sometimes People are very like, this is my job. This is what I do. And I don't do anything out other than that. And, yeah. and you have to compensate me, yeah. right? You have to compensate me for doing these things. And sometimes, you know, and, and obviously I don't want to take advantage of anybody. And I, and I don't want to, to not pay people what they're, what they're worth. But I think sometimes you have to stretch a little to really set yourself apart and, and to be trusted to take on, you know, leadership roles. And I think sometimes... It's not all young people. I've been surprised often by, by people around me, but, but sometimes it, it does seem to be the new norm. And I think baby boomers and people in our age range are, we're much more apt to want to take those challenges and, and step up to the plate. Not everybody should be an executive director. And I think sometimes you need to have those difficult conversations with yourself about wh- whether or not you're willing to to sacrifice the things that, you, that, you, that you're going to have to sacrifice to be an executive director. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, you do have to do, like, you know, like being an executive director, you really do have to do everything. I mean, the, the shelter yeah. that I ran, which was so gross, it was just full of, I had to, I had to kill rats. Like I had yeah. to put out traps and kill rats and throw them out and clean up the trash and do everything. I mean, you have to do it. And I do you, agree. You are the, yeah, you have you're to do all the dirty work. And if you're not yeah. do that and you're not willing to do everything, yeah, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't even think about being an executive director. And no. I, you know, it's and, so- it, and killing rats is easy. <laughs> Try firing or laying off people. That's hard. Yeah. Yeah. I'd rather take the rats. I, rat duty is great. I just, I don't want to have to lay off people. That, that's the hard part. Rat duty. Um, rat duty. Is yeah. 
I also, I also tell people that, like, because I work for Ronald McDonald House, right, in Los Angeles, and Ronald McDonald House is supported by McDonald's, not fully, but in some ways, there, there's a, a tie between both organizations. And owner operators take pride in cleaning bathrooms in their restaurants. And so that kind of trickles down to the charity itself. I, as a, a director of operations there, I would clean bathrooms all the time, right? on my hands and knees showing you new staff how to properly take care of floors. Right. And so, you know, those kinds of things, like no one's above that. Right. I still keep my own calendar. You know, I still do all of my, my grunt work and my, my scheduling of my meetings. I don't, I don't think that that should be something that I relegate to someone else. It's not, I'm not above anybody. Right. We're pissing off a lot of executive directors out there. No, no, (laughs) no, I know. I know. And you know, so I do want to talk a little bit about coronavirus, the corona, uh-huh. corona and uh-huh. how it has affected your world, especially in domestic violence. So from my understanding, you know, when we're in lockdown, people can't escape their abusers. They can't get out no. of their house. So we've been now in this for, God, seven months. It just, it's never going to end. What is happening? Tell us, tell us a little bit about like what's happening in the domestic violence world. So domestic violence has been up uh, across the, the world, really. The numbers are, are, are pretty serious around the world in, in Los Angeles County. And I can talk about, you know, specifically at Haven Hills, we saw spikes in, in hotline calls uh, throughout the pandemic. We average about 100 to 125 calls to our hotline a week. And these are pre-pandemic numbers. Uh, during the height of, of lockdown, we're seeing more than 300 calls a week. Wow. And when you think about that, that's, you know, about 1,200 calls a month wow. to our hotline, to just one hotline in the county of Los Angeles. And a lot of people looking for shelter during that time. I think we can't close. Our, our shelters cannot close. So we, we run shelters. Uh, we, we provide support services. We were able to move some of that work to telehealth and, and online and had continued consistently to provide more services than we did before the pandemic. So there's a, a tremendous amount of investment to, to be able to move online, to be able to provide those services remotely. And then in terms of, of exhaustion of staff, there's been a, a tremendous amount of, of just staff is, is overwhelmed with the need that's in the community. And so the coronavirus has been very bad. We're seeing far more cases being reported. We're seeing more violent cases being reported. And people are in lockdown with with their abusers and and have very limited opportunities to even look for help. So I think we're going to see this in waves as more people are able to to safely leave their home and make those calls to those hotlines. But but it's been kind of like, you know, undulating throughout. You know, sometimes we're back to to pre-pandemic numbers and then then they spike again. So we're not sure what's going to happen. I I have a sense that as people begin to to lose their jobs again, as the moratoriums on evictions are lifted across the state, that we're going to see more people, unfortunately, reach out for assistance through our hotlines and and requesting shelter. And that probably will continue for at least the next year as we continue to stabilize in the economy. And so I think we're in it for the long haul. Right now, my focus is on how to make sure that staff is taking care of themselves to make sure that they are healthy both mentally and physically so that they can continue to, to deliver these services. We started pretty early on support groups for our staff. So we're running those uh, twice a week and then team building exercises every every week as well to make sure that that our staff is finding outlets for, for some of this, the stress, the vicarious trauma that they're experiencing through this pandemic. So it's not, it hasn't been pretty and it has not been easy. 
Uh, and I speak on that. And from my privilege point of coming to you from my living room, I've been working remotely. These people are my heroes. I mean, they're going in to our shelters. They're they're working remotely to provide these support groups. They're they're doing uh, they're going above and beyond. I think that when lockdown happened and when we're always talking about first responders and hospitals, mm-hmm. and that's obviously mm-hmm. obviously really important. But like, I don't think people realize that shelters still stay open 24-7 and domestic mm-hmm. violence still happens and workers still have to go into shelters and work and be with other people. Yeah. And we're considered first responders, but right. we are right. considered right. first responders But I didn't well. think, yeah. think about that when they hear it. So mm-hmm. like, I'm, I, what can we do? So what can the listener that we have left and what can we do? Well, <laughs> Financial support is always important for all nonprofits. And so I, I, I wouldn't be an executive director if I didn't bring that up first. Um, but it, it also uh, is about helping to spread that message, right? To helping us reach more people through social media. So at Haven Hills is our tag for all of our social media. So if you want to tag us and help spread that message about what our needs are, you know, there are in-kind needs, there are financial needs that, that all organizations have right now getting that message out and, and, and helping us raise both in-kind and, and financial support is really important right now. And in-kind meaning? We need food, we need toiletries, we need clothing, we need all of those things because uh, the, there's a tremendous amount of need. We're, we're running essentially an, an informal food pantry at the moment for some of our clients. We've had to stretch really to meet the need that's out there. And so an official, we also are a housing pro- provider. So we, we subsidize housing for domestic violence survivors and paying the rent and helping them with furnishings and things like that. But we need cash to be able to do some of those. Some of our, our contracts, we do receive public funding, but most of those are reimbursement based. And so that means that I have to put it cash out before I'm able to collect that back. And so cash flow is always an issue for organizations like ours. And so having that those unrestricted that unrestricted support is really vital to continue to be able to provide those services to the clients that are are, are looking to us for help right now. So let's say somebody wanted to get wanted mm-hmm. to start a career in domestic violence, well, not domestic violence, that's not the way to say it, but in serving uh, and helping uh, nonprofits doing domestic mm-hmm. violence work. So let's say the first job is a caseworker, right? What are you looking for? What would somebody who wants to get into this world be thinking right now? What would what should they be what should they be expecting in that role? More and more, we're trying. We're specializing in terms of the staff that we're hiring. We're hiring a lot of people that are that have some sort of social work background or have done this kind of work before. I think you know, volunteering for uh, the other way that we've, we've been hiring is that a lot of our, our current staff were volunteers at Haven House, right? So they right. started, you know, coming in shelters and domestic violence organizations in the state of California have to fill a requirement. All advocates have to have a, a baseline of forty hours of training that is provided by domestic violence organizations across the state. We run a 40-hour training, and so paying to, to have that certification and then volunteering for Haven Hills or for any other organization to learn the ropes in that way is also a way that you could engage. I would say for, not just for domestic violence, but where do you see yourself, right? You have to kind of have a, a sense of what are the kinds of organizations that you want to work for and then try to figure out how you can get your foot in the door. For me, it's always been issues around women and children. I've always worked for organizations that support women and children. And so I think it becomes easy when you're applying for jobs to try to figure out, you know, where, where you fit in and then build that, um, that experience around, uh, around those fields. No, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I, I, okay. I agree with you. And that's, you know, it's interesting where 
because I ended up in the homeless world and it was not something that I thought I would do. It was nowhere near mm-hmm. that was on my radar. But once I did, it was the world that I wanted to stay in. So you're right. right. So I want to just kind of talk about the LGBT thing for one second. Mm-hmm. That's fun for mm-hmm. both of us. So I think kids these days need to uh-huh. know how they have it. You and I are around the same age. I think I'm a little older. And I can't look at my, I hate Zoom because I'm staring at my face and I look like my bags look terrible. I'm trying, listen, I'm trying all these different kinds of things for my bags and nothing is working. Uh-huh. I've got like creams. I've got like those things that you stick on in the morning. Multivitamins nothing, seem to work. Nothing is working. It's no? terrible. Oh, wow. No, and the lighting and the Zoom. Anyway, that's a whole other story. We can, that should be a podcast in and of itself. Just bad. Really? Self-care. Self-care. Well, yes. that's a positive way to say it. So <laughs> when we were, when we were coming up in this world, it wasn't, comfortable for us, I think, to come out. So, uh, you know, I think that that's something that's really important for people to understand is I think it is much easier now, right? I guess, like, what was your first experience where you realized uh, it was okay at that point to finally say, hey, I'm married to a woman, I'm happy, and I deserve this job just like anybody else? I started in this in this in this world in in the mid nineties, right, right out of college, and I don't think kids nowadays kids, I sound so old. I don't think young people these days realize uh, how traumatic it was to come out because right now everybody's celebrated for coming out. In the nineties, you weren't celebrated. You know, you could lose friends. It was uncomfortable. I remember the first time I told someone I was gay, I threw up. It was, you know, it was really, really difficult to do that. How old were you when you knew that? How old were you when you knew that? I was three years old when I knew I was gay. I mean, I can remember. I I had a little girlfriend. I always knew that girls were just so, uh, just so cute. I just, you know, it sounds really creepy that I'm talking about (laughs) girls. But, you know, coming up like in grade school and stuff, I just fascinated by little girls, right? Little boys I couldn't care less about, but little girls, I, you know. When you were a little girl. When I was a little girl, it's going to be creepy. Yes, you know I'm that, not being creepy. You know but, that but, my, my first experience, how I knew I was gay? Uh-huh. Was, you remember the show Pippi Longstocking? Uh-huh. So the boy, her- How old are you? And I thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. So anyway, so the boy, he was like Tommy. I think his name was Tommy. And mm-hmm. I must've been like four or five. I had a huge crush on him. And at that point mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I like boys. So anyway, sorry. So you were saying- Yeah, no, I had a little girlfriend when I was three or four, I think. I used to go out back and share little sweet kisses and- Yeah, I was, yeah, I just, I knew, right? I think, you know, most of us know from an early age that we're different, right? So so when Um, did you like come out when you were like, when you got a job? I was in college. Yeah. I was in college. Yeah. I was, when I was in college, I came out to my friends and I, you know, you you learn, I think for people our age, we learn to, to segment certain parts of our, of our lives. And I don't think I felt comfortable in nonprofit arenas to really disclose that I was a lesbian and I worked for someone that I, I think was gay, but they never came out. And, and so I felt like, well, maybe I just need to keep myself to my, my sexuality to myself. And so I never came out. I think, you know, around the time that I met my wife, I didn't want to deny her. And so the jobs that I, that I had post Sandy have always, I've been very specific about saying like, I have a wife and right. this is her. But if I wasn't married, I probably would continue to just segment that portion of my life because you never, you know, you never know. You don't ever know completely, right? When, where someone is or what they think. It's true. And I think that, you know, this is a whole other, this is a whole other conversation Mm -hmm. about just how much we've progressed because you're right. Like when we Mm -hmm. came out, it was like, 
not a celebration, but now mm-hmm. I think things have changed and it's so great that they have. No, uh, absolutely. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I want to make sure everybody knows I'm all for celebrating gay youth, but it is, you know, it is very different. I often don't think that, that the privilege of the young, right, that they understand what a privilege it is. Oh my God, you're going to get so much, you're going to get so much hate mail after this. So much I hate know, mail. You're I just going to, from the, just, from our, from our one listener, by the way. So no, no, no. But yeah, you, you never know when these things come out. <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> so, I so yeah. No, Listen. I want to celebrate them. I think it's great. I think you should have a party. I think, you know, it's an important thing. And, and you know, I'm truly in a little bit because I, I do know that there are certain parts of the country where it's not celebrated and where people are still in the closet. Right. And so I want to be cognizant of that as well. But it was very different. And it's so nice now that that it doesn't even matter. Like it mattered for us. We had to come out. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. anymore. And I do think that that's, I don't know. I think that we've come a long way. Even in the nonprofit space, I don't think people are like, oh, in the nonprofit space, it's always been open and accepting. Not forever. So yeah. I, I do think that we are very blessed and lucky right now. Um, okay. But. Yeah, I, I, I still think, I don't think people are, you know, in the nonprofit world as are as welcoming as when, you know, I've, I've had a board member said dyke in front of me. Before. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I, and, you know, I come from a, I'm a a cis woman who presents straight, right? Not because I'm trying to present straight. I just present straight. Right. So I have to come out all the time, doctors, dentists, (laughs) like, you know, every time I enter into a new contract with anybody, it's like my wife, you know, uh, it's, it's just, it it is a lot of coming out. So are you saying to, are you saying that I, Uh That I don't have to come. I know. I didn't say that. I talked. I I that was an I I statement. (laughs) That was an I statement about myself. I'm not trying to. I'm telling you that I come out all the time. What I heard from that. What I heard from that is that every time I open up my mouth, uh, Louboutin falls out. That's what I heard. That's what I heard you just said. I did not really. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So I want to. I want to ask you some uh very lightning round questions. Okay. And, And before we do, just to like tie everything up in a bow as best mm-hmm. I can in this mm-hmm. hard one. I've been drinking too much on a Friday. Uh-huh. We just end, started. I know. Like, well, wait, you yeah. think I just started, but it's, uh, you know, it's five o'clock. It doesn't mean I didn't start at one. Oh, uh, that's true. So uh, just to tie it up, uh-huh. it is worth everything that you go through on a daily basis to be an executive director. Yes. 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 Sometimes, not all the time, but, for, <laughs> but, but the majority of the time, yes. And sometimes you like, you worry, are you making the right decisions? We worked really hard on something and sometimes it falls through. My projects are years in the making, right? And sometimes you can, you can take the wrong turn at a specific juncture. And so it's not always easy and it's not always fun. But m- the majority of the time, I guess it is. There's a lot that I miss running nonprofits. There's a lot mm-hmm. I do not. You're right. When those wins happen or, you know, when you see the results mm-hmm. of your work, Mm-hmm. So let me ask you a few questions just so people can know a little bit about uh-huh. you. Okay. So if my favorite question, which I totally stole from another show, mm-hmm. if you could steal any item from any museum that you've been to in the world and nobody mm-hmm. would know, and you can just put it up in your house, what would it be? Oh, that's an interesting question. Right. And it's not mine, by the way. It would be LACMA because okay. LACMA has a Diego Rivera pr- uh, painting Flowers in 1942, I think it's called, that I have most of the time, I, I haven't had it at Haven Hills, but for most of my offices in my career, I've had that print up in my office. I would want the original. Okay. Every once in a while, I'll go to LACMA and I'll 
I'll sit and look at it. I haven't done it for a couple of years and obviously the Rona is not helping, but yeah, but that would be the one thing. So that's okay. So, mm-hmm. all right. I'll think of that next time I see that. Yeah. And then, Obviously, if you could have a drink with anybody, you'd want it with me, but... Rav, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm living my dream right now. I know, I know. <laughs> and by the way, like, people are, like, clobbering to get down to, to be on this show. So, like, right. I think I got, what? Nobody. Right. If you could have a drink with anybody in the world, living, not dead, who would it okay. be? Okay. I'm going to be so trite. It's Michelle Obama. I just really... I think she's graceful and beautiful and so articulate and smart and just a a wonderful human being. I think that would be the person. I also, my wife um, has an an aunt who is, who's a nun. She spent her entire career helping others, like running. She, She was the mother superior for her order. And she's like working in Africa right now to build schools for girls and has done a tremendous amount of, of educating of young, poor girls in, in, in India, where they're from. And I've met her, but we haven't really been able to sit down and have a drink. But I've, my, my wish is to, to hear from her what her experiences have been in, in this field and have a drink with her. And luckily, they're very big drinkers in my wife's family. So, so but you fit, that in, will happen you fit in real well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not lightweight, actually. I don't drink that much. I actually, yeah, I oh. I'll have one drink. I'm already feeling the effects of the pimp's cup and it's, it's mostly not pimp's. Listen, this this Corona has definitely not been good to my liver. I will just oh, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> to my liver, but it's been really good for the bourbon company community. Yes, that I'm spending money on. Oh, well, actually, good to know. I'll get some stock. On that note, thank you very much for joining oh, me. Oh, thank I'm you really for inviting me. So I want to make a toast to one more yes. to the end of this to the to this next year. May the apocalypse finally come, or. Here's to the new year, man. Like, here's to the new year. Cheers, my friends. Cheers. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Matt. How are you doing today? Surviving. Surviving, like the rest of us. I got to tell you something. My interview with Ileana, which was lovely, was a little offensive because right at the beginning, she called me a fruit, just right off the bat. She was like, hey, you're a fruit, just so you know. So enjoy that. I hope you I hope you keep it in. So that Matt, you yeah. but you know, because you and Eliana talk about it, that gays and lesbians don't always, you know, get on so well. So for her, it was an instinct. Think about all the hate mail you're gonna get from that. But yes, Eliana and I are bringing us back together. We're gonna bring you the gays and lesbians together. We are. So she's awesome. She has an impossible job of running a domestic violence shelter at any time, but also especially during COVID. So I really enjoyed that. And uh, I hope you enjoy listening to that as well. I certainly will. On that note, I just wanted to tell you that next week I'm I'm interviewing your husband. I don't know if you know that. And it's a little have... dangerous, dangerous for you. Dangerous a for you. A little bit. <laughs> to clarify, my husband is Mark Watterson, CEO of the Convalescent AIDS Society, which loans free durable medical equipment to people in the San Gabriel Valley. It was such a pleasure interviewing your husband. I adore him. I think the two of you make a fantastic couple. And I think he's great at what he does, and especially at his nonprofit. He's just such a great guy, aside from the way that he dresses. Yeah, no. He, honestly, Matt, I think, and you know this because you you know us both and you've dealt with us both in a, in a business space. Because you can't count COVID because I'm in sweatpants right now. Even in the real world, when everything's normal, my husband by far is the best dressed in our relationship. And I don't know what that says about uh me <laughs> exactly like either but i think he's just like that far over to gq and i'm just sort of like in the middle of the road you know what i mean like i think it's more of a 
applause to him less than a condemnation of me. I feel like you're giving him a lot of credit. I've seen some of those pants. I've seen some of those hats. But whatever it is, I adore your husband. What's going on? It's true. I will tell you, I'm wearing right now, in his honor, sweatpants that are beyond overpriced from theory that are cashmere. And I said, screw it. It's COVID. I'm going to spend the money on it. And I got to tell you, the most comfortable things, but so stupid because now I got to dry clean them every time I wash them. So stupid, right? But your husband, your husband would, your husband would be okay with that. That is a bold move only because of the, uh, if you're wearing sweatpants, even a fraction of the amount of time that I am, because literally I wear my sweatpants more than any of my other pants, partly because all my other pants honestly don't fit with the COVID-19 that I've gained. Mm-hmm. So the sweatpants got the drawstring, but you know, yeah, dry cleaning the sweatpants, but give us honestly, how does it feel? I want a, I want a real deep description of how it feels to wear. Cause I never will cashmere well, sweatpants. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing, and I don't know, I feel like our viewers need to cover their ears. It depends if you're wearing underwear or not wearing underwear. I was going to say, are you going commando? If you're going to go to the trouble of wearing cashmere sweatpants, don't wear underwear. Just don't do it. And by the way, it's a little show. It's like the gray sweatpants show on TikTok. It's a show. It's a show. It's a show. It's comfortable, and it's a show. And the other thing about this podcast that's really important, Ashley, and you have to make it happen because I think Mark thought I was bullshitting, but I wasn't, is that the picture of Mark on the website, when we sell it, it's going to be him and Speedos. Him and a Speedo? Him that, <laughs> that will be interesting. I don't know where you're going to find that picture. If That's going to have to be a Photoshop job. I look forward to it seeing it. It is. Can you find a nice swimmer's body or just maybe Ryan Reynolds or, you know, I don't know. Merry Christmas to me. <laughs>